This is Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 48, Terminal Approaching, presented by BMO Capital Markets. This is Ian Lingen, and I'm joined by BMO experts Ben Reitzes, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creeder, Dan Belton, and Ben Jeffrey. In this episode, we'll discuss the ever-evolving macro landscape and the risks surrounding the Fed's next few rate hikes. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. So I'll kick off the conversation with a few observations about what's playing out in the U.S. rates market at this point. First, the path ahead for monetary policy isn't necessarily crystal clear, but we do have a greater understanding of the Fed's reaction function to higher than expected or lower than expected inflation at this stage in the cycle. Another observation worth making is that we're to the point where once terminal is realized, the biggest question and frankly the biggest debate amongst market participants is going to be the extent to which the Fed is ultimately able to keep terminal in place. Now, this isn't necessarily a new uncertainty, but it is one that has become more relevant in the wake of the recent non-farm payrolls report in which we saw average hourly earnings come in lower than expected and arguably more importantly, downward revisions to the prior numbers and then followed by a weaker than expected ISM services number. Now, the incoming Fed speak since the data has been consistently hawkish, although the option of a 25 basis point rate hike in February has unquestionably been put on the table. And we do think that that will be contingent on the December CPI print. Currently, expectations are for an effectively flat headline number with core seen increasing three-tenths of a percent month over month. Now, that's a slight uptick from November's pace. However, it does represent a deceleration to 5.7% on a year-over-year basis from 6%. And so it's with this backdrop that we do have a reasonable amount of sympathy for market participants' eagerness to bring forward the next big trade from a macro perspective, and that's the bull re-steepening. And this brings us to something we learned in the minutes of the December meeting released in the first week of January, and that the Fed went as far as to explicitly highlight what they designated as the unwarranted easing in financial conditions that we've seen play out over the past several months. Now, considering the Fed still wants to keep policy well into restrictive territory in order to slow the economy and ultimately bring inflation down, the fact that we've seen the financial conditions index come so far off the tight extremes that were reached in October when 10-year yields touched their peak 
introduces the risk that as the market attempts to get ahead of that bull steepening that you mentioned, Ian, and bring rates lower, that actually might put more pressure on the Fed to be more aggressive. And not only their messaging around the intention to continue raising rates and hold them higher than we've seen in a very long time for an extended period, but also the potential for a higher terminal rate. Now, as it currently stands, we've heard from several committee members that a Fed funds target ban somewhere above 5% remains appropriate. And also in the minutes, we saw that not many, not several, not a few, but no FOMC participants expect any rate cuts in 2023. Given that this is coming in fairly meaningful contrast to the Fed Fund's futures curve that peaks out firstly below 5%, but also shows some chance of policy easing over the rest of this year, that means that as we move forward, by fighting to keep rates on hold in contrast to what the market is pricing, that's going to hold tightening implications for the overall economy, treasuries, and probably financial assets as a whole. And it's with this backdrop that we continue to see the path forward for nominal 10-year yields ending 2023 at 3% with two-year yields at 325. Embedded in this forecast is an acknowledgement that effective Fed funds won't necessarily serve as a floor to nominal rates. More importantly, when we think about what the Fed's objectives are at this point in the cycle, they're committed to reestablishing the assumption of forward price stability, and that involves reestablishing credibility as an inflation fighter. So our nominal rates forecasts reflect the compression of break-evens from current levels back to the pre-pandemic norm. The one caveat that I'll add in this context is we're assuming that the Fed is committed to the 2% inflation target. If, in the unlikely event, the Fed does decide to increase the inflation target this cycle or widen the band around acceptability, that would be bond bearish and put sustainably above 4% 10-year yields back on the table. And this year has gotten underway with not just a Fed and inflation story, but also obviously a robust kickoff to the corporate issuance calendar, narrowing spreads, and a period of relative stability. So with that, Dan, how are you viewing what we've seen so far this year and what that might mean over the coming couple months? Well, I think some of the cross currents that you guys just laid out have really been on display in the IG market where we've seen spreads trading in a very tight range since Thanksgiving. We've seen a peak to trough range in spreads of just six basis points over the last six weeks. Now, certainly holidays are a factor there, but spreads are also at something of an inflection point here near six month lows. To your point, Ben, about unwarranted easing in financial conditions, spreads now sit narrower than long-term and post-crisis averages, despite elevated economic uncertainty following the Fed's most aggressive hiking campaign in decades, and investors have been understandably defensive at current spread levels. The expectation for the Fed to hold monetary policy in restrictive territory for potentially all of 2023 further weighs on risk sentiment with the potential for deteriorating balance sheet health over the course of the year. On the other hand, corporations generally remain very healthy, and incoming economic data suggests earnings should remain strong. Falling inflation helps on the expense side as cost of inputs falls, and a still strong consumer certainly helps on the revenue side. Amidst these cross-currents for risk, we have the January supply wave, which likely represents the most immediate driver of spreads in the near term. Yeah, Dan, and supply has been heavy to start this year. We've had $81 billion in issuance through the first five sessions. 
which puts 2023 mostly on pace with last year. And 2022 saw the second heaviest corporate supply in January on record, trailing only 2017. Now, going into this year, we were very interested in how new deal reception would fare, given the weakness that persisted most of 2022, but firmed late in the year with November featuring the most constructive new issue execution statistics of the year. But this year, primary market executions remain underwhelming. We've had average new issue concessions of 11 basis points year to date, which is in line with the 2022 average. We see some evidence that executions are starting to improve this week. Yesterday's $23 billion in supply met pretty strong demand, which had concessions averaging just eight basis points, so still elevated relative to the historical experience, but well below recent norms. In order book coverage yesterday increased to four times, which is well above last year's averages. So we're seeing reasons for potential optimism on the horizon. Additionally, large American banks report earnings beginning on Friday, and that's going to bring heavy supply as banks emerge from these earning blackouts. And heavy financial issuance is, is well anticipated by the investor base. So as elevated financial issuance has come to start this year, many investors have been holding back waiting for issuance from the large American banks. And once that comes beginning next week, we could see the removal of that overhang start to clear the way for secondary spreads to potentially narrow here. And we do see evidence of increased risk-taking in the high-yield market, with high-yield spreads about 40 basis points narrower year-to-date. Further, outperformance has been most pronounced further down the credit spectrum. C-rated credit has excess returns of 1.9% so far in 2023, with double Bs just behind at 1.4%. IG excess return is slightly negative thus far in 2023, and supply is the one potential factor that explains that divergence. Dan, you talked about heavy IG supply thus far this year. The experience in the high-yield market has been the opposite. Just 3.75 billion in high yield supply has been issued thus far, which puts January high yield supply on pace for the slowest start of any year since 2016. The implication here is simply that heavy IG supply has likely been the primary headwind for IG spreads thus far. And once issuance invariably slows, we expect IG spreads to narrow from current levels on the back of some of those economic tailwinds that Ian and Ben talked about earlier. Yeah, and with this in mind, we see compelling value in the single A and triple B rated segments of the IG market. Single A's stand out as pretty attractive from a relative value standpoint compared to double A's and triple B's. And then we like positioning for some amount of spread compression, which should benefit triple B's in the near to medium term. Just given our expectation for the likelihood of sustained optimism for a soft landing. And so given this macro outlook, investors should consider increasing beta in their investment-grade portfolios. Greg, how do you see the recent optimism for a soft landing playing out in the FX market? So that's an excellent question. Without a doubt, uh, it, it has been an active uh, past few weeks in foreign exchange with uh, the U.S. dollar dropping about a percent between the FOMC and, and the end of the year, and then another percent or so uh, at the start of this year. And I think the catalyst is increased probability of, uh, you know, the quote-unquote Goldilocks scenario, both for the U.S. as well as globally. So, you know, the decline in wage growth that uh, Ian mentioned, hey, but it's good news. It means uh, lower probability that the Fed is going to have to induce a recession. But at the same time, the other thing that's going on that's driving the dollar down and in other currencies up, it's lower probabilities of recession in Europe as well as Asia. And uh, 
for the most part, I'm, I'm going to turn that over to, uh, to Stephen to, to discuss those issues. But I will tee it up by, by saying that um, November, early December, as, as we thought about uh, China transitioning away from COVID zero and how that was likely to go, the assumption was it was going to be uh, a long and bumpy process. And, uh, you know, data is not like really accurate or complete, but it seems to be going probably much better than feared. And then for Europe, you know, going into the winter, I, I think most of us figured that at some point in the winter, there would be a cold snap and uh, there would be blackouts and spikes in the price of natural gas, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it was like 80 percent probability of, of these bad things happening. And, uh, you know, that that probability is much lower now. And so all these things combined to uh, to bring the lower dollar that we have seen thus far. Greg, you mentioned a number of very important FX-related themes there, and I will start with Asia x Japan. I think the recovery from zero COVID and the property market distress in mainland China will be sluggish, and recent economic data confirm this, but Asian x Japan currencies are not trading off those fundamentals right now, in my opinion. They're trading off sentiment and the outlook. So while China's inflection point from a fundamental perspective, will probably be more U-shaped than V-shaped. What policymakers do have in mainland China is a lot of wiggle room to keep policy supportive of growth because inflation is so low. Outside of mainland China, again, sticking with the Asia X Japan space, there are indications that price pressures are starting to roll over. So for instance, in South Korea, and there's also probably a path to less tightness in the labor market. Now, if that comes to pass, this should give central banks the opportunity to be less rigid with monetary policy hawkishness, opening the door to looser financial conditions. So for the time being, I think a decent portion of the Asian ex-Japan currency space will remain a buy on dips versus the dollar as sentiment remains optimistic amongst investors. Turning to Europe, yes, Greg, um, the run of much milder than average temperatures across northern and central Europe has breathed more life uh, into the major European currencies versus the dollar. We went into this year looking for a fairly flat profile in euro dollar during the first half with a move to 110 coming in the second half. But if these warmer winter weather conditions persist and inflation rates on both sides of the Atlantic continue to fall quite sharply, at least for a time, the main risk here is that we see 110 print in euro dollar much sooner than the second half of the year. I've just got again a point though that there is room for a volatile head fake. For instance, we could get to 110 rapidly in euro dollar on hopes of a quick return to 2% and stable inflation, only to see inflation not behaving as much as we'd like over the course of the year, central banks remaining very hawkish, supply-side issues reappearing in some markets, including fossil fuels, and that would lay the groundwork for, I think, a pretty nasty pullback in euro dollar from 110. Greg, I want to throw the mic back over uh, in your direction so you can talk about the yen. It looks to me like the yen is due to underperform the currencies I was talking about earlier in the Asia DXY. What do you think about dollar yen over the course of the next few months? Hey, um, just... Quickly, on, on the underperformance versus uh, other Asian currencies, you, you know, the yen moved together with the Asian currencies last year 
because um, everything was just being being moved by the Fed. Um, but a more normal situation is is that uh, in in risk on and risk off trading, uh, you know, people put on long uh, Asian regional currencies with higher yields, such as Korea, um, versus a short in the yen. Um, you know, in, in in risk on moments, and and then they take it off and risk off, and I and I think we're we're reverting back to that, um, and that being a, a key driver for for the yen, for dollar yen. You know, we we had the sharp move to the low one thirties after the BOJ surprise, and I think we are seeing and will continue to see them do their best to talk the market through that surprise. I don't think they they re- really wanted that much of a decline in dollar yen. And I think that the market will come back to putting on yen funded carry trades uh, over the next several months. And, uh, and the last thing is the price of oil, which I think will um, find find its way a little bit higher here. And uh, I, I, I still think dollar yen is going back at least to the, to the high 130s over the next several months. And that, that would be my favorite um, play in the FX market is, is some way of uh, uh, shorting the yen. But that crude oil story, well, it's, a, it's an interesting one for Canada and Canada's outlook. And uh, I wonder if you have anything to say about that, uh, Ben R. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, oil's uh, one of the dynamics that, that, is, that is still quite important for Canada. Uh, prices have come back and, and uh, that that might weigh a little bit on activity, but we're we're just not as sensitive to crude oil as we used to be. Uh, production just doesn't really swing as much as it once did. Investment doesn't really swing as much as it once did uh, when when prices go up and down. So that probably won't be a, a huge driver, but on, on the margin, it do, does have an impact. For now, what what I'm really focused on is is really the, the next Bank of Canada meeting. We'll get that in, in a couple of weeks on January 25th, and we had a a huge employment print last week for for December. Uh, and that came on the heels of a, of a strong November CPI a few weeks ago. Uh, we'll get another CPI print next week, but uh, the combination of the strong November core CPI and, and big jobs print really solidified expectations for another 25 basis point rate hike from the bank. Uh, but from here on in, things get a little bit more interesting. Uh, while, while the Fed is really, really fighting to, to keep rate expectations high enough and, and uh, financial conditions tight enough. The bank isn't facing quite the same issues, at least not from a policy rate perspective. Uh, the, the bank looks reasonably priced here, uh, getting rates uh, up up to 450 and, and decent odds of, of another 25 basis point rate hike. And, and the reality is that at, at this point, given where debt levels are in Canada, we are expecting at some point to see some reckoning here on, on the economy. Uh, we, we do expect the economy to slow down at this point. You're, you're seeing some modest areas of slowdown. Housing's obviously cracked and, and continues to, to soften there. Uh, the growth has held up pretty well through the fourth quarter, but we'll, we'll see if that momentum is able to, to persist through Q1. Uh, it does look as though the balance of risk is, is that the weakness in the economy is going to come a little bit later than we thought, but uh, it, it really is, is hard to, to believe that uh, the economy is not going to face meaningful headwinds from from the fact that rates are are over 400 basis points higher from a year ago. And the hope is that that will drive inflation lower through the course of 2023. That is our expectation. Maybe it'll be a little bit stickier in the first half of the year. That keeps the risk around rates to the upside, uh, policy rates, and, and and further out the curve as well. But as, as the economy develops through the course of the year, inflation probably does come down 
Uh, energy prices are a key wildcard there, uh, just, just to come back to energy. But uh, for now, uh, that, that is the base case expectation. Near term, the curve is, is going to be challenging. The, I think it's similar to the U.S., uh, the talk is all about steeping. But with another rate hike on deck, that, that's going to be a bit of a challenge near term. And uh, as long as the risk is toward higher policy rates, that is going to, to make it very difficult for the curve to, to materially steepen. So uh, at this point, it really is just, just a, a game of patience. Well, we've covered a lot of territory today, so let's conclude with a rapid-fire roundtable. My biggest takeaway from the last month has been that we're running up against the end of the Fed's rate hike campaign and monetary policy expectations in terms of signaling from the Fed are going to transition to a point where it's all about how long can the Fed hold rates in deeply restrictive territory before needing to blink. And the next challenge that Powell and the rest of the committee will face is keeping financial conditions tight, even as the market attempts to bring forward rate cuts and ultimately the large bull steepening of the curve. In credit, we expect resilient earnings and optimism for a soft landing to drive outperformance for higher beta credits in the coming weeks. We'll be watching New Deal execution statistics as a near-term driver of credit, particularly once the largest U.S. banks come out of earning blackouts. In FX, dollar weakness driven by lower probability of um, bad outcomes is real, but it's probably getting to the point that it's uh, overextended. Uh, so look for the USD to bounce a little bit. My favorite pair for doing that is dollar yen. So get long here, look for a move back up to the high 130s. So in terms of the main currencies I cover, I think there's more clarity emerging on pound sterling versus the dollar. Short term, I think you fade rallies into the 122-123 range in cable because the retrospective data for the UK economy is still probably going to be quite poor. But we are seeing early indications that the labor market and inflation pressures in the economy are moving in the bank's preferred direction. So I think you can buy dips below 120 in cable with more confidence on expectations that the Bank of England will be more growth friendly as the year carries on. Inflation is going to remain the key policy driver in Canada through the first half of the year, keeping the risk to rates on the high side. And that means investors looking for a steepening are going to have to be patient. This concludes Macro Horizons monthly episode 48, Terminal Approaching. As always, please reach out with any feedback or any ideas on topics that you'd like us to tackle in future episodes. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.